Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is John Herting. John has his doctorate in physical therapy, and he was my personal physical therapist after I had sustained a few injuries through Olympic weightlifting. I loved John's unique approach as it relates to helping people build the confidence to get them through the recovery process and then once again feeling good inside of the gym, but also in the way that he provided me and all of his clients with the toolkits and resources necessary to be able to do a lot of the basic maintenance on themselves to prevent further injury. There's so much great information in here packed for the average gym goer or fitness enthusiast, so I know you're going to take a ton out of it. Enjoy. Welcome to the show. What's up, Derek? How are you? Dude, we have been trying to get on here for quite some time now. I know. It was like, I messed up, you messed up, I was sick, you can still kind of hear it, but finally we're here, we're getting it done. Yeah, we're here. So So what's funny is like, I feel like we used to have these lengthy conversations as part of some of my PT sessions with you, um, where I would come in and spend 20 minutes doing some exercises and work and then spend 45 minutes just asking you questions and <laughs> yeah. kind of picking your brain. So I don't know that this will be all too different from that. Well, I was speaking, I was talking to a patient yesterday actually. And I was like, we both, we all just need someone to follow us around like a content guy, like Gary V or just film everything and find the snippets of conversations we have every day with people. That's so true. Yeah. I mean, if, if only that, uh, that world was cheaper, to, to hire someone to, to, to do that. I mean, we've, uh, we've brought on quite a few people for the purposes of content over at Hardbat, and it's been such a godsend for me because I love the recording side and I love mm-hmm. the creation side, but I hate the editing side and I'll do it up front yeah. as a way to kind of get the ball rolling and create momentum. But it is definitely not the part that I enjoy the most. No. And it takes us double the time, probably quadruple the time actually of what it would take them. And, um, yeah, I, I, I've I've found as we've gotten deeper into business, like I just can't get bogged down with that stuff. Like, pay the people, get it done right. Don't mess around with trying to learn it. Just outsource, outsource, outsource. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to dive a little bit into your background a little bit because while there, listen, in every industry, the goal is to differentiate yourself in some way and somehow. So whether that be by creating a niche group or by being able to provide resources or education that's a little bit different than everyone else. Everyone's trying to carve out a piece of the pie for themselves. And I think that you've genuinely done this in the physical therapy space. And I think that there's a lot of people that try to do it, but there's a difference between trying to do it and actually doing it. And I think you've actually done that. Um, Mm -hmm. So speak a little bit to your background and what's kind of given you some leverage in the physical therapy world um, to kind of create the niche that you have. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, well, I was an athlete. I played soccer up through college. And so I was always involved in that world. Um, you have the classic story of someone that went through rehab, but to be honest, like I was never a P I've torn my ACL a couple times, same knee. Um, there's been other injuries in there, but I never coming up through high school, like middle school, high school, even into college, like I had never experienced physical therapy. I rehabbed my first ACL strictly with our athletic trainers at school. So it wasn't even like a true physical therapy experience. Um, but in kind of seeing what they did and um, then like wanting to be somehow figure out a way to be involved in athletics or, and not be sit behind a desk. When I graduated, I was in, I became an exercise science major and where I went to school at her sinus, it was two tracks. You either go like the gym teacher track or you go the more medical track where you're taking your, your biologies and your chemistries and your all of that um, to either go physical therapy or like PA. Right. Um, and at the time, like I didn't really understand what a, what a PA was, but I wanted to be involved with exercise somehow. So I was like, I'll do, I'll do PT. Um, I ended up taking a couple of years off of school or off of school after undergrad 
um, where I fell in. I did some personal training in every setting imaginable. I I did like the YMCA's, the private studios, had my own in-home business um, while I was also working corporate fitness for Johnson & Johnson. So I was like grinding it, but experiencing you know, physical fitness and programming and all those different realms. You were putting your reps um, in. Getting the reps in, 100% getting the reps in. Like going to train at a YMCA or through my business before work, then going to work for eight hours and going back and training and then fitting in my training somehow in there. Um, so the only the only real setting I haven't been in um, is like a college strength and conditioning setting. But also at the time when I graduated in 2006, like there wasn't, there wasn't a ton of those opportunities available unless you're going D1. Like there Yeah, no I was going to say, at least not a, some really good paying ones. There are no good paying ones. <laughs> Fair I enough. I mean, there's still, how many well-paying D1 college strength coach positions? No, that's now? actually a really good point because I was thinking about that. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought like, well, that was good pay in the context of when you started the gym, right? But like yeah. now I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump ship to go take that salary. No, absolutely. So I'm like, I never worked in a college training and conditioning program. And I, it wasn't even a thought because our science didn't even like tell us those were options, right? It was either gym teacher, PA or PT, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so unless you were really getting out there and figuring out what other strength coach options were there, it was very ACSM focused, like American College of Sports Medicine. I don't think I even found out about like the CSCS until I was a couple years out of school and doing my own research and f- from whatever circles I was working in. Um, so I didn't even think about college strength and conditioning, but now I'm like, I'm okay with not being in that setting because I would have been like, I don't know. It just, it's not this most ideal setting. There's so much red tape involved with that. And like the involvement from everything I hear. And I think you and I spoke about this a little bit. Like, you know, I've always had a slight back corner dream of like getting involved with the Eagles, which sounds great Mm -hmm. up front, but then you realize how much time you actually get with the players, how much involvement you actually, you know, have with them. and realistically how much you can actually do over the course of a two or three month period where by the way you have people breathing down your neck going like don't you dare hurt them you know what i mean yeah like that i mean to me right now like a a professional gig especially a professional strength and conditioning gig just that doesn't seem super appealing because of that the time you get with them isn't a lot to really make a change you're really just babysitting them making sure they don't get hurt during the (laughs) season everything going on with the different player organizations. It just, it's really restrictive. Yeah. And I can relate really heavily to your experience with school, not necessarily showing you the direction that you actually end up, ended up choosing to go. So in other words, like being business oriented is just not really something that's highlighted. I'll Mm -hmm. I'll never forget. We had a guy come in uh, as part of one of our exercise science classes And he gave this whole like 45 minute presentation about how he got his degree in ex phys, started a business. Now he runs this yoga studio in this gym and he's telling us all about it. And then at the end, he's like, yeah, you should uh, do your internship and then come work for me. And I'm thinking like, no, bro, like I want to run the gym. (laughs) Like I want to own a gym. Yeah. Um, So it was just, yeah, it was so ironic because everything that was preached was like either corporate or go the route of just trying to be a good employee somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, so I ended up, you know, I did that for three years, like put piecing together personal training on top of my full-time job. And then I ended up getting into PT school. Um, and that's where I started really getting into more of the S and C side of things, I guess. Cause when you're doing, when you're doing like the general pop personal training, you're doing the corporate fitness thing. It's more of like general pop programming for weight loss. Right. Yep. Um, but then as you get into PT school and you're, you're trying to figure out your path through PT school and, and I, that's really when it was like probably a, a year and a half, two years before that's when I started getting into the boy, reading the boils and the Cressies and all of those like old school traditional SNC guys that really started getting out there and putting things out on, on the internet. Right. Like there, there's some of the original guys. There's like the Alan, Alan Crossgrove, um, you know, you keep name dropping or whatever, but um, Perform Better started their circuit, I think, in like the 2006 to 8-ish time frame. So that's when like these guys started really getting out there and putting out like the private sector SNC guys were, were saying like, oh, we're actually like, I think Cressy's opened in 2006. So it was like, oh, it's really there's this tradition. These, these private SNC guys are now starting to open things. And it's not just YMCA's and personal training studios and 
um, college strength jobs. Like there's out also these, these private guys doing stuff. So when do you so think I you start- first got the itch to want to open your own practice? So I start, like I said, I started doing like in-home personal training and started a business, um, before I even got into PT school. So I knew that entrepreneurism, um, there, there's a, that I had that spark of fire in me. Um, and I, I knew that if really like the way that you're ever going to make a little bit more money than a personal trainer, a strength and conditioning coach, or a traditional PT, um, and to have some freedom of time and be creative. And that's the big one there. That whole thing. And to have any, have to have any foresight as to the importance of that when you're like fresh coming out of school is so hard because at that point you're just so passionate about what you do. You think you want to do it all the time. Yeah. And like, it's so hard to think of like, no, I also want to start a family. Oh, by the way, I'd like to travel. Oh, by the way, I'd like to not be on the floor working 12 hours a day. Right. It's hard for a 22 year old to, to have any foresight in that regard. Well, and, and I think it's, it's one of those things like how many, how many 70 year old physical therapists do you see out there still working? Same thing, like how many 70-year-old strength and conditioning coaches do you see out there still working? That's probably a little more prevalent, but <laughs> not as much. Maybe, but they're all beat up. And a lot of yeah. them are still in like the traditional college strength and conditioning settings. That's fair. Like how many of these older guys are you seeing in a private sector doing strength and conditioning? Like you have some of the old school guys that are still dabbling a little bit, like your Vern Gambetta is like transitioned to then they start coaching out of their garage. Right. Right which isn't a terrible ride into the sunset gig. Um, but I think it's like, what's the, what's the path, you know, like where, where are you going to end up? What's the, what's the, the end goal. So I think I always had a little bit of that entrepreneurism in me where it's, I, I want some freedom of time. I don't really want managers telling me I have to practice this way and, and politics dictating what I'm going to do is um, because I want to put the patient first always and make yeah. sure that I put a good product out there that isn't influenced by others and, you know, meeting different goals and expectations an organization might have outside of getting the patient better as quickly as possible with the things that work the best. Yeah. I think it's important for people to understand that it's a little bit easier to kind of bend the rules ethically when you're a larger corporation because you just have massive cash flow and investment up front to be able to do certain things that you can on a smaller level. Like when you're a small business, like their best interest is in your best interest. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense that you put everything forward to trying to help your clients or patients, Um, which is why I feel like generally people receive such better care in a smaller uh, physical therapy clinic rather than going to like, you know, an API. Yeah. Well, I I think there's also like small businesses can pivot more quickly because they don't have to go through the bureaucracy of things going several levels. What's the saying? Big ships turn slow. Right. Exactly. Um, So there's definitely there's manual techniques we do that not every clinic is, you know, bigger organizations allowed to do or um, let their therapists do. Um, We can have better discussions on the newest techniques that are coming up through the chain, like we can just pivot more quickly on on decision-making processes that put the patient first. For sure. Well, and I think you, you know, it establishes a a better team of people because you're not managing a hundred of them, right? Like, and we're, we're the same way over at Hardbat. Like it's easy for me to make changes within the company that directly impact the experience of the member because of the fact that like, it's super easy to get in touch with the coaches and sit down and have meaningful conversations. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah, sure, I, you know, I, yeah, I'm sure you go through the same process with, with your uh, employees. Yeah. I just, I, I think, you know, you can create, and that's part of it too, in the PT profession. Like when you take a look at it, like PT has one of the highest rates of burnout of any profession. It's a great profession. People love it. But PTs tend to become overworked in certain settings and they just burn out. So how can you create a space where you can give yourself autonomy to treat the way that you want, right? But then also create a space where you have these great employees that are doing a great job putting patients first, but put them in an environment where they're not going to burn out. Yeah. Right. No, I I agree. I agree. Um, so there's a there's a compliment that I wanted to throw your way. It's actually probably a couple of them. Um, so one, like the the way that you and I 
met originally was because I came to you kind of at the worst of the worst time after having like a fairly severe back injury as part of my weightlifting career, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that even more important than you like actually fixing me was you giving me the tools to be able to do it and showing me the importance of doing some of these more detailed kind of like, um, less, you know, less focused around like just the compound movements or like specifically around trying to, uh, you know, focus on hypertrophy or getting stronger. Like these were things that involved, you know, how to turn on muscles like the transverse abdominis and like paying attention to how my hips were balanced one to, compared to the other and actually growing an appreciation for some of these, you know, I hate that to use the term corrective exercise, but also you to how to take corrective exercise and then just exercise correctly. Like you were like a huge part of that paradigm paradigm shift for me as a coach to where I started to recognize like, Oh wow. Like if you, you put a little bit extra effort into some of these other areas, it will help solve some of the problems that you can't seem to get around with some of the more fun and complex movements. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I look at exercise in a similar way, like there's, there seems to be this notion that there's PT exercises and there's strength and conditioning exercises and there's weight training exercise. But the the truth of the matter is like nobody owns any one exercise, right? And it's um, sometimes I it's funny. I take it as like a kind of this like it's a condescending remark when P, when I hear people say, "Oh, I have to do my PT exercises," right? Because when you look at exercise, it's really just this continuum of where does someone fit um, on the scale. So a squat for one person might be being able to sit on up and down off the toilet, whereas a squat for another person could be squatting 500 pounds. But where on the continuum of squat progressions and regressions does that person fit? Right? It doesn't matter if they're training with me or if they're training with you. Like, Derek, you might regress someone to a box squat that is similar to a toilet height. So they're sitting, it's mimicking them sitting on a toilet, right? But that's, that's where that person coming into the gym on your program fits. And they could very well progress up to this 500 pound squat, right? It's also very feasible that someone comes into your gym that needs to do regress to a box squat that has anterior knee pain. That doesn't mean they necessarily come right into being a PT patient, which some people would say like pain is the delineating factor. No, it, it's really, okay, Derek, how do you regress or progress or alter this squat pattern to make sure the person can do it, help them be able to move pain free within the squat pattern? Right? Yeah. And I think you were really helpful with me as well in this regard, because there were times where I would go to you and, and, and explain some of the symptoms from a, a, you know, with a client that, that they were experiencing and you would kind of give me the, the go ahead of like, Oh no, you, you know how to fix this. Like you can go, you, you don't need to send this person to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, it, it gave me a lot of confidence in my ability to solve most problems inside of the gym and also to be aware of when they are outside of my scope of practice. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, being able to outsource in that case. Well, I, well, I think, you know, coaches have to have a certain level of education. And, and I think you're one of them. And that therein lies the problem a little bit with our profession within strength and conditioning is it's such a low barrier of entry. But it's also a young profession where as our generation's coming up in the generation behind us, like there are a ton of really, really smart coaches that know just as much, if not more than some really, really smart PTs, because they've done their reading, they've do, done their research, they understand anatomy, they understand biomechanics. There's really, we have to understand that there's some really good people out there that that's why the connections that we make, you with the medical professionals and, you know, the medical professions with the strength and conditioning coaches and the exercise movement professionals, you just have to find your circle where you're, you're, you're surrounding yourself with very smart individuals, no matter what the degree. Sure. And yeah. And it, yeah. And it's a game of repetition, you mm -hmm. know, and, and also a game of trial and error to some degree, you know, like you can experience trial and error with a client or a patient without like debilitating them. And I think this is a fear that I have to help my own coaches get over when we onboard new coaches or trying to teach them new skill sets, which is like, they think that if they give 
the wrong exercise or prescribe 12 reps instead of 10, that someone's like patella is going to shoot across the room. You know, it's <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Like I've screwed up a lot. Right. And haven't killed anybody. And I continually, you know, have gotten better because of it. And I think that people believe that it's like, it's all math and that you should have it all figured out and it's always perfect. And I know, you know, this, but that every single time you work with somebody, it's idiosyncratic. Like you're going to get responses back that are a little bit funny and you're like, "Mm, that's weird. They didn't respond well to that. And you just have to keep playing this game of trial and error to some degree with every single client and every single problem that you face. Yep. Every, everybody's an N of one and you can get bogged down by, you know, the, the intricacies of movement and the intricacies of programming. But really I feel like as I've progressed in the profession again, now 20 years into it, it's now, it's it's now me taking a step back and saying, okay, has this person mastered the basics? And it's now becoming my programs are more foundational, like more fundamental, more making sure people master the basics and less of the frill, right? And I think that that's when you look at it too. All <coughs> excuse me, all we're doing is we're just stress managers that are looking to manage intensity and load to help people become more resilient and robust. Yeah. And we're also providing the correct sequence for people, right? Like where are the Mm -hmm. ultimate determinants of what's the next best thing for you right now? Right. It's where they fit on that continuum, right? And whether it's me working with them or you working with them, it's having the knowledge to put them in the squat pattern continuum to get them the results that they need or the stimulus that they need at that specific point in time. Yeah. And I think one thing that is a message that you and I share with our clientele is the idea that we shouldn't shy away from pain, right? Like when people go to you or they come to me and they say, Hey, I want to start an exercise program, or I want to start um, a program of PT it's there, there's a level of acceptance that like new range of motion is uncomfortable range of motion. Right. And that while we need to pay attention to pain symptoms, there are going to be times where like, you're going to have to perform exercises that are slightly uncomfortable or even painful as part of the progression to get strong and get better again. Right. Like I think sometimes people are too quick to write things off where they're like, okay, I'm experiencing a little discomfort in and around my knee. I'm just going to completely avoid it. Yeah. So as much as we're going to talk in this podcast, how we're super similar, um, what makes you really good and what delineates the good strength coaches from the great strength coaches is the ability to understand your lane, right? And understand the red flags where it's like, Derek, you're doing an eval. You see someone with low back pain, but they're exhibiting a radiating symptom, or they're saying that they have changes in bowel and bladder, you know, to punt them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like neuropathy. Yeah. We go through the whole Ospro list. Right. So, so it's, it's a strength coach understanding when something's a red flag and they need to be punted and not trying to work through that. But if someone comes in and they have a little bit of low back pain or they strain a muscle during a heavy lift then it's like, okay, you know what? I know how to deal with, I know how to manage load. I know how to change positions, regress a little bit, do a little self soft tissue to see if the, I can get this person over it. If I can't get this person over it in a, in a couple sessions, then you know what? Maybe I need to punt for a more focused manual treatment or something, right? But um, it's really understanding your lane and saying, okay, this is this is not a red flag versus this is a red flag. And within that, even as you're looking at some of the common common injuries like tendinopathies. A lot of what we, (coughs) excuse me, a lot of what we see in our population because it's a mostly, it's a fitness focused population are your tendinopathies, your biceps tendinopathy, your patella tendinopathy, your um, rotator cuff tendinopathy. And and research is showing that it's really just load management to rehab those people back. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so you're starting to see strength coaches that are becoming really, really good with load management with tendinopathies and getting really good results. But it's understanding the research as it pertains to managing volume and intensity with, you know, the starting point to the end point of managing a tendinopathy. For sure. Yeah. And I think it's also the ability to convince the client what is best for them next, you know, and like, 
let them buy, help them buy into the process of getting better. You know, I think one of the things we fight a lot is that people become almost like they romanticize specific exercises or the ability to do certain things. So I think there's, there's different problems that we face with like the outside general public, the people that are coming into our gym. Those are the people that are generally a little bit more uh, risk adverse where they're like, Oh, I've got a bad knee. And they just like write off the ability to run, jump and squat and do anything because some doctor somewhere sometime told them that they probably shouldn't do any of that stuff anymore. And then you're like, you're 36, not a good idea. But once people are in the gym, I think the fight in that case is usually more uh, around getting people to stop romanticizing specific exercises and just understanding the benefit in taking the progressions necessary to be able to build back up to that completely pain-free. Oh, by the way, you're going to move better than you were before, which means you're probably going to be able to move more load or perform that at a higher level. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's where... Yeah, your gym started as a CrossFit gym. I think that's a lot of where CrossFit got some of its bad rap. So we all know the studies show CrossFit doesn't have an in, you know increased rate of injury from any other gym activity. But I think everybody looks at, oh, you CrossFit, are you hurt yet? Like you'll get those comments and with an eye roll. Um, but I think some of it comes down to the consumer where I'm sure you've had people in your gym before where you're they have pain with a deadlift or they, you know, there, there's a prescribed workout of the day on the board. And you're like, you know what, Jim, today you're going to do it this way. I want you to regress your deadlift to this because you have low back pain. And they're like, no, like I want to do RX. So I'm going to suffer through the back pain because I don't want to, I, I have an ego that I need to satisfy. And I don't want, you know, Paul next to me to give me a hard time. So um, I understand what you're saying, Derek, but I'm not going to regress it. I want to do it RX. Yeah. Right. So to, to, to kind of back that up, like one of the, the sayings I always use is, is that CrossFit with systems is the best methodology in the world, but CrossFit without systems is one of the worst. Like it can be just complete and total chaos. So we personally use a level method, but like I know a bunch of gyms that, that have systems that they've created on their own. And really what it is, it's just, it's creating prerequisites that a client must demonstrate before advancing. Right. Like, and in anything else we do in life, this is the case. There's a reason why you have to pass first grade to move, to move on to second grade. You can't just skip to fifth. And I think that gyms without the systems necessary have clients kind of picking and choosing where they want to go and what they want to do all too much, you know, especially if you're a gym that's overrun, you know, if you're a gym that's got 15, 20 people in class, like I don't care if you're the best strength and conditioning coach in the world, you're not scaling everyone in that class appropriately, or you're going to spend the whole class doing that and they're not going to work out. You know what I mean? So it just gets to be a problem of the ability to scale um, or be able to perform that correctly at scale. So, yeah, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I, I try to fight the good fight and speak on behalf of the the good CrossFit gyms out there that are really making huge transformations um, to, and, and positive impacts on the the general, um, you know, public. But uh, look, I'm not going to deny that there are, bad gyms, just like there are bad doctors, just like there are bad physical therapists. I mean, they exist yeah. in every profession. But I think part of that too, is being able to have that hard conversation with a member who's been there for five years, right? It's, you know what? No gym. You're not ready to do this today. You've been doing this. You have to regress or you can't do this workout. Like, I'm not going to let you do it RX because your ego is getting in the way. That's a culture right. thing though. You know, like in a gym and you probably deal with less of this because it's not like you have, you don't have like group PT, um, mm-hmm. but for us, because a lot of what we do, I would say 60% of what, of what we offer is group fitness. It, it's just a matter of being a leader, right. And like setting a yeah. tone in the culture of the class of like, no, 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 no. Like we are going to defer to the expertise of the coach and you're going to listen to the coach because they have your best interest at heart and they're doing the thing that's best for you right now. So mm-hmm. let's not get all, you know, caught up in, in the specifics of the workout, um, you know, in terms of like what for us, we have like a white through Brown level. So it's like, okay, yes, you might be able to do Brown some days, but like you're experiencing knee tendinopathy and you probably shouldn't run three K today. That doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's great that you've been able to develop that culture and and it's, that's why you're, the gym's doing so well right now. I mean, it's, 
it's amazing to see what you guys are doing down there. I greatly appreciate it. Well, even yeah. though it's been from afar, because I've only been to to one of uh, your clinics, it's awesome to see everything that you're doing um, now. You have two open, correct? You have Malvern mm-hmm. and Garnet Valley. Yep. Very cool. Um, now, you know, you've had quite a bit of experience with working specifically with kind of the fitness enthusiast genre of of people that either partake in CrossFit or strongman or um, even like Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting. What are some of the common or most common issues that you see amongst those people? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm, I might take this a different direction. None of them want to shut down, right? Um, none of them, all of them use physical activity as, you know, whether it's for the psychology of being able to just take that hour out of the day to get away and forget about what's going on in their life. Um, whether they're training for a competition, um, whatever reason, none of them want to stop working out, right? They want to stay in their weight loss journey. They're going to continue on for this competition. It's their mental break of the day. Um, so one of the most common things we see is they don't want to shut down. So us as physical therapists have to say, okay, you're dealing with whatever ailment, how do we help you continue to achieve the goals that you're trying to achieve without shutting you down? Um, very often in our practice rest for two, three weeks until it calms down. Isn't, isn't an answer for these people. So we need to be skilled. And, and a lot of times this is where their coach comes in, someone like you and being able to pick up the phone and have a discussion. But also um, we need to understand the basics or, you know, even the, the intermediate to advanced concepts of strength and conditioning and programming, how that fits in with the recovery process and how can we tweak or regress or progress an exercise to help them continue to you know, so say, for example, a power lifter, right, um, starts to develop anterior hip pain three weeks out from their competition they've been training for for six months. He's not going to shut down. He's going to keep squatting. How do we alter his squat pattern to, or how do we change his program, whatever, to make sure he can continue to maintain slash gain strength for his competition while limiting his anterior hip pain? Um and producing and limiting any further damage he might have while he continues on his training path. Um, so that that's something that we need to become, we have become really good at is rest isn't an answer. We're going to tweak someone's program to keep them on the path that they need to be um, to get them the goals that they want, keep help continue their fitness journey. Right. Yeah. Um, with that, a lot of some of the the common ailments we see are the tom- tendinopathies, like I mentioned in the past. Like we see our post surgical people, um, but a lot of the things we deal with are, um, you know, an overuse injury because someone wants to go to the gym four or five days a week, but they're not necessarily focusing on recovery in there. Um, they're not making sure their nutrition is on point or their sleep is on point. Um, so we have to, you know, I think we very often in our practice we're we're hitting some of that low hanging fruit to make sure people are getting their sleep right and their nutrition right um to make sure all aspects of the recovery process are taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us it's like sleep, stress, protein and hydration. It's like if you're not going to get those four things together, any conversation about higher level higher level stuff is just going to be stagnant. Like we're going to yep. wait, you know, we got to get those things put together first. Cuz that was actually going to be my follow-up question, which is like is is the tendinopathy just a byproduct of some of those other things going on? You know, I think this is one of the, my favorite sayings here is like, are you overtraining? Or are you just under recovered? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's, you're right. Like it's just, it's so amazing. The research that's coming out now about sleep, like at this point, if you haven't as a clinician or a um, strength coach, if you haven't read why we sleep by Matt Walker, Oh, fantastic like, book. You're, you're 10 years behind. Right. Yep. Um, you know, it just there's so much coming out. Like everybody's wearing a whoop strap now. Um, you know, but there and there's their own issues with that, right? But I think it's there. There's so much research coming out on just the the easy stuff, the easy recovery stuff that we can do. Um, 
before worrying about the intricacies, like you mentioned before, of programming extra sets and reps in 10 versus 12 and how many days a week, like just get your hydration on point, your nutrition on point, your sleep on point. Let's start there. Yeah, for sure. But again, that's the boring stuff. You know, like we, I've actually, I can't tell you how many people I've had to talk off the ledge that insist on getting up at four in the morning to do an extra workout. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so why are you doing that? They're like, well, I'm trying to lose weight. And I'm like, okay, how much did you sleep? They're like five hours. I'm like, if your goal is to lose weight, you would mm-hmm. take that time and sleep. Yeah. But you know how it is like people, especially people that are like super, you know, heavy, like in the fitness enthusiast world, like. They just want more and more and more push harder, you know, it, almost like suffering is like a badge of honor when it comes to, to fitness. And I think we really try to do a good job of reeling people in from that, um, getting them a little bit more holistically focused on, mm-hmm. like I always say, like 80% of the time you should leave the gym feeling like you could have done more. Absolutely. A workout's not made to crush you every single time. Like it's okay to have those crushing workouts. Like I like them as much as the next guy. But it shouldn't be every single workout you're laying on the gym floor making a sweat angel because you're exhausted. Right. And I think, you know, one of my favorite points to make here with this is that one of them. Okay, so obviously a a core focus for a lot of people is is weight loss or recomposition, right? It's like the loss of body fat and the maintenance or gain of muscle tissue. So people buy into the high intensity stuff because of the sensation associated with it. But what people fail to recognize is that neats or that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, basically everything outside of exercise that you do throughout the day that burns calories just by Mm -hmm. you being alive and moving and fidgeting and doing things like getting up and down off of a chair, walking down steps, that plays a very large hand in things like your metabolism and the amount of calories you burn on a daily basis. And what people fail to see is that if you're going crazy hard every single day, all your body does is just pull your knee down, which is why if you do a workout that like crushes your soul and your central nervous system along with it, you'll find yourself going home after work and just crashing on the couch where you're just like laying there like a bag of clothes watching Mm -hmm. Netflix. And it's like, people fail to, to recognize that like you're actually just at a break even. Like you would have been better going to the gym that day. Even though if you're a little beat up, you just do some zone two work for 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, sure. You wouldn't burn as much during your workout, but you would go home, you'd move around, you'd walk the dog, you'd be more playful with your kids or, you know, just doing chores in and around the house. You wouldn't feel like a lump on a log. And then the next day you don't have this like repercussion of all these like jacked up cortisol levels. This like, yeah. you know, immense amount of soreness. So I I think there's some nuance here, but like, it's important for people to understand, like the the name of the game is not go to the gym and just like try to crush your soul every single day. I don't know about you. I mean, I've had these periods where I'm working out five, six days a week, but right now I'm getting two or three if I'm lucky and I feel better. I'm maintaining things. I'm still gaining strength. Feel great. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I got a kid coming in, uh, in like five or six months. So I'm putting my time in right now. Um, absolutely. I, uh, in solidarity gave up drinking with Julia for, for at least the nine months. It'll probably extend beyond that. So I figured I might as well take advantage, but, um, I mean, I've been trying to squeeze in six days a week, but again, like two of those days look like a light long bike ride or like hike through the woods. You know, it's, it's not just like smash mouth CrossFit going crazy every single day. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually, I mean, there, there's definitely weeks where I wish I would have done more, but I'm like, well, you know what? I'm still gaining strength. I feel great now. Um, and sometimes it is, if it's like I go on an extra hike or whatever, it's great. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the beauties of, of adventurous activities like hiking and, and kind of getting out there a little bit is that it, it gives you the ability to regularly prove to yourself why you work out in the first place. Because if you only work out so that you can look a certain way or so that you can, uh, you know, be the badass in the gym, it's like that eventually when life, you know, kind of goes on and, and your lifestyle is forced to change a little bit because you have kids or other things happen and you're forced out of the gym for a little while, like that loses its steam. Whereas like if you're someone that's an adventurous person and you mm-hmm. use your body outside of the gym to benefit your quality of life, you're far more likely to stick with it in that case. Yeah. You have to keep it fun. Like if, if it just becomes this monotonous, I have to go to the gym to work out. 
it's it's harder to sustain. You're not going to you're not going to it's not it's not an authentic fitness path, you know, in my opinion, right? Um and there's going to be you have to be okay with ebbs and flows. Like there's going to be times where you're going to the gym for 6 months straight, you you feel good. There's going to be times where your exercise is running around with your kids and and you have to be I know you've been getting into this, but you have to be like, you have to be present in the moments, enjoy fitness for what it is, whether it's going to the gym or being outside with your dog or your kids or, um, and just relish the opportunity to be able to do those things when you're in your mid forties and fifties, or to be, you know, if you're in your sixties and you have grandkids to relish the opportunity to be able to get down and up, up and down off the floor with the kids or have a football pass with your seven-year-old grandson. Like, these are all things that um, that that speaks to some of the neat you were talking about. I made a great video on that this morning. Like it's to be able to be active with active kids as they're coming up and create those memories, I think is huge. And that should be a reason of its in of itself to stay fit and active. Right. Yeah. And a really good point. Uh, Peter Atia made you follow any of his stuff a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So a really good point he made was that financially, you can recover if you don't save a lot of money when you're young. Like you can hit it really big in a career. You can uh, come into money through an inheritance. Like yeah. some some big things can happen as you get older that set yourself up for retirement. There's no lottery ticket for your physical health when you get old. Yeah. If you're 60 and you neglected your physical health your entire life, it's not that you can't make change, but the impact that you're going to be able to make at that age is minuscule to the compounding effect that it would have had had you started when you were in your teens. Oh, I have friends with companies who cater to specific groups of individuals where they've, you know, in some circles, they've crushed life. They're making millions of dollars a year. Their health has gotten away from them because they haven't exercised in 30 years, right? And now they're in their 50s and 60s looking back and they have all this money and now they're, tr- they're paying tens of thousands of dollars a year to have him manage their the entirety of their um you know fitness nutrition everything to try to get their health back. Yeah. And it's a pain in the ass cuz their hormones are all messed up. They're they're diabetic. They're <laughs> diabetic. They're yeah. they've their family lives are all screwed up, right? It's so they're they're now they're spending all this money that they work so hard to make to try to get it back if they get it back. Right. And that's why I always say the expense of finding a good coach and working out is always going to be astronomically lower than the expense of not taking care of yourself. Yeah. I, I've had some really smart people say you should spend at least 10% of your income on um, your health. Oh, easily. Yeah. Easily. I mean, like at the end of the day, like it, a good example of this is like, if you ever travel across seas, right. And you go on like a trip uh, to Italy or you, you know, you go to Hawaii and you have to like lug all of your suitcases, your your significant others, and if you have kids, all of their stuff. And you're like hopping on trains, like getting everything into cars, traveling across the countryside. It's like you realize how physically taxing that is. And it's like mm-hmm. these are the things that people want to be able to do when they're retired. And it's like, well, what makes you think you can do that then if you're not taking care of yourself now? Like if you can hardly do those things now, what the heck makes you think you're going to be able to do that when you're 65 or 70? Right. And it's going to ruin the complete memory of the trip. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because it's going to be like a a marathon effort to get anything done. Right. Yeah. Dude, it's, um, it's been a lot of fun, uh, kind of like staying in open communication with you throughout the years, because I feel like there, there's been some big shifts that have taken place. And I know you keep saying like the strength and conditioning scene. And and for me, that's kind of just the fitness industry at large, but also within the physical therapy world, you know? So can you speak to some of uh, the uh, changes and adaptations and kind of like the, what has occurred over the last decade or so, maybe for good and bad within the physical therapy space? Yeah. I mean, I think speed, like, like I said, with strength and conditioning coaches, like the, the generation coming up after after me, I'm 38. So the generation coming up, there's there's amazing new kids that have come up. Um, they've been training for a while. There's they're following the better strength coaches. They've been personal trainers, and then they're they're pursuing PT, and then they're getting the space and becoming these great 
um, hybrid PT strength coaches taking care of the entirety of someone's exercise program. And they're doing some amazing things. Um, so, I, so I think PT, just like strength conditioning, is a young profession. I, I think it started in the 40s. And, you know, I could have my days completely wrong here with the polio epidemic. Right. So so physical therapy is also a young profession as is strength and conditioning. But now I think as research has come into it and it's more evidence. Um, we're just seeing the these great professionals um, come together and just view exercises. We view it on a continuum of where does it fit in? And then they're becoming PTs. So they have the manual therapies and access to all this other knowledge. Um, and they're just, they're doing some amazing things, creating monsters and these, these great professional athletes that are, you know, more resilient than ever. And, um, well, and injured. also they're able to compete into the later parts of their forties, you know, like you look at like LeBron James yeah. or, or Tom Brady, like there's a reason why this didn't exist 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I'm sure in certain instances it did, but it was far less common and it's becoming more of a reality now because of the fact that there's some collaboration going on between the physical therapists, um, and between, you know, strength and conditioning coaches and all the other professionals that these athletes lean on, um, and making yeah. sure that they're continually improving their tissue health, their biomechanics, you know, their, their, their mental fortitude around training and uh, just kind of keeping it together well beyond what we thought was possible even a couple of decades ago. And, it, and it's so nice when you can find that egoless team of professionals with one goal in mind, make Tom Brady better, right? It's, it's just when, when you remove egos from the, the equation and you and I can have discussions on an athlete without, and you know, I'm going to learn stuff from you. You're going to learn stuff from me. And you know, really what's the ultimate goal. Let's make sure this person stays in the gym and competes at what they want to do for as long as possible. Yeah. Right. And, and the big predictor of success on the athletic field is staying on the athletic field. So if you're hurt, right. You, like you're just not, you're not going to see the success that you want. And, and one common denominator through both of them is like Tom Brady doesn't really get hurt and, and LeBron doesn't either. or He manages it really, really well. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, but I think I feel beat up as a 38 year old who just played college soccer, retired when he was 24, right. To, to play 20 years on top of that in a professional setting. It, it's, it's an amazing athletic feat that I think they don't get enough credit for. No, I mean, they're obviously putting the time in. It does help to be able to afford $5 million a year in, yeah. in professionals constantly uh, being able to work with you. But yeah, I mean, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's an amazing feat. And I think that it's really paving the way um, it's, for future athletes to be able to see their careers extend far beyond what they originally had thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just curious cause I wanted to backtrack really quickly on this. Why do you think so, that there is still this, uh, messaging amongst some physical therapists and doctors for that matter, where they have like CrossFit's like a buzzword for them where they immediately are like, no, 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 don't do that. Like, yo, you shouldn't do that. I just think there's this perfect storm of CrossFit. Like I remember when it was starting in 2006, when I was, you know, around it a little bit more, that's uh, like, you know, as an athlete, <clears throat> I, th I just think it was, everybody was hopping on. It was a low barrier entry. Everybody was starting a gym. Um, there were people guiding these group classes with barbells that didn't necessarily have the reps of training themselves or the experience in teaching the lifts to guide people in the appropriate fashion. Right. Um, and I think there's just this like early to mid 2000s boom of like CrossFit gyms everywhere. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> but I think, I think as CrossFit's progressed, like I, I do, I think that there's some really, really good gyms out there now. And I think they've, the cream has risen to the top and the, the, wor the worst gyms have kind of, you know, faded away into, you know, oblivion. But I think, I think it was just this, this huge volume of people getting involved in the sport without super qualified coaches. And it was really just, let's throw spaghetti at the wall, give people a good workout and call it a day. Right. 
Correct. But I yeah. think the good coaches have now refined the programming. They understand progressions and regressions. They understand if you don't have full shoulder flexion, maybe you shouldn't be jerking or snatching um, for reps. Um, and and I think they're able to guide people more appropriately within the programming. Um, and I, I think it was just less like this big boom, but now it's narrowed itself down into, you know, the better gyms have stuck around. Yeah, there's there's some irony in it because I, I 100% agree with you that there was obviously a big boom and it's not like a big boom, like a like a soul cycle big boom. Like the, the reality is people, no one's going to hurt themselves on a bike, right? Mm-hmm. But they're also not going to become incredibly fit individuals and well-rounded fit individuals by only yeah. sitting on a bicycle, right? So I think the irony is this, which is, CrossFit has the capacity to hurt people if performed incorrectly because it exposes you to a bunch of complex movements or can expose you to complex movements, even though you're not ready for them, right? So that could, because the, the ultimate per- determination of whether or not you should be snatching or not comes down to the expertise of the coach. Mm-hmm. So if a CrossFit gym has great coaches, that's the limiting factor. But on the back end of that, right? And this is where things get really interesting. It's like, I think if you took the average CrossFit gym member and you put them up against any other gym goer out there, Orange Theory, F45, any of those, they would wipe the floor with them. Like their capacity and their ability, both in terms of like their metabolic conditioning and health, in terms of their physical skill sets and the things that they've acquired and are able to do in their physical strength, and in their adaptability, the ability to figure things out that they that are new and odd, I, I think that it's it's unmatched. You know, so I think I, as long as you have the systems in place to prevent people from getting hurt, it's untouchable. Yeah, and I, but I, I think initially in those early years, I think you're looking at high risk exercises, um, like a barbell deadlift from the floor, right? Like a majority of your middle-aged people probably shouldn't be doing a barbell deadlift from the floor with load 50 times. Correct. But if you're doing it RX and for what what would be a traditional, a typical RX barbell deadlift from the floor for a male? Like 225, 185. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's probably not appropriate for the most middle-aged males to be doing, right? Um, And there's better options for them to be doing to make, to to limit risk of injury, right? But when you have an unqualified coach that doesn't understand there's better options and, and, a guy, and a middle-aged man who used to play D1 sports who misses the competition who says, I'm going to do this RX, it's just the perfect combination of ego and unqualified coaches with an exercise that isn't the right, you know, the right starting point. And it, it's, it's a recipe for Well, sure. Injury. But it's also why the screening tools are equally as important because you can have the best coach on the floor, but if they don't know what the hip flexion looks like of that individual or yeah. just a basic idea of their, of their spine health, it's like, they're not going to be able to make the call on the floor. If the person seems to have at least decent movement. And this is why like you helped us develop our screening process for onboarding all new clientele specifically for this reason. Like I want to know what movements you should and shouldn't be doing the minute mm-hmm. you step in to my door. Like I want to get a snapshot of your current capacity. And in yeah. this way, I can then pass that knowledge to the coaches and to you. Like I give you a very clear message as to the things that are the best for you to do right now, rather than just being like, yeah, just try RX deadlifts today. We'll see what happens. It's like, that's not a good idea. Yeah. And I think initially like with CrossFit, like those screening tools just weren't there. Right. Right. But I also, in, in in fairness, like I don't know if those screening tools are, are at any other fitness program, you know, in the early 2000s, right? Like a lot of it was still being developed. Like that's when the FMS came out in the early 2000s, like 2006 to 8. So, so I think that was like that early 2000s to like 2010, like a lot of this stuff was in its infancy being developed. And I think now we can look back in 2022 and say, okay, we're, we're pretty good at screening things out now. But when you look at the macro of it, the FMS was the first thing to really try to create a common language. And that was, you know, 2006-ish, right? Um, so things were just really in its infancy when CrossFit was in its infancy, right? So the, the tools weren't there. And if you're a really smart coach, like you, maybe you had your own tools. But I think when you have that huge boom with a low barrier of entry, um, it just, with a barbell, that's what I was going to say. The tools weren't there, but the liability was far higher. 
Yeah. You know, like if you work with a, a personal trainer and you're doing curls and, you know, controlled dumbbell strict press and like some of the, the, the more bodybuilding S type movements, like your risk is far lower if those tools aren't present. Right. Because when you look at when CrossFit came out, it was what were, what were people doing? They're going to the gym and bodybuilding. You had some power lifters, but that was a really fringe sport as was weightlifting. Right. Yep. And then, um, you had your cardio people. So your runners who still get the same injuries now that they did 20 years ago. <laughs> That's, we, could have, we could talk for an hour on that subject. Right. But combine that, combine your, your runners, right? Your runners with your high rep powerlifting and nobody high rep powerlifts really. I don't like, and then your high rep weightlifting. High rep powerlifting sounds like just a phase in hype, like a hypertrophy phase for somebody. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but when you throw time on it, then that adds a whole nother thing, right? Where the competitive athlete's ego starts to get involved. Yeah. So I, we used to always say like, we make the big guys run and the little guys lift. And while that saying originally was more meant geared to just like making people be okay with being uncomfortable. I think it's now what I, what I would change that to is like, we teach the big guys how to run effectively and the little guys how to lift effectively. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you take the runner, right, that runs, that's putting on 30 miles a week on average, um, and you teach them how to, develop a little bit better load tolerance and be able to push themselves a little bit harder with some resistance-based training, it's only going to make them a better runner. And then if you take the power lifter and you help mobilize them to a point where their gait as part of their running actually looks pretty decent, it's only going to benefit their hip, knee, and back health as they continue to pursue powerlifting. Yeah. I don't disagree with you one bit. <laughs> I would love it. I, at some point, we'll come to a point of disagreement, but I think we're we're very much on the same page with a lot of this stuff, which is awesome. And and honestly, like you've been just such a an awesome mentor for me. Like I don't even think I have ever mentioned this to you, but um, you, I went to you and basically told you I wanted to go back to school, and I was I wanted to go to school for sports psych, and you more or less talked me out of it. And then Did what really? I. You did. Yeah. You were like, you were like, uh, you were like, I know that sounds great. And like, I'm not saying it would be necessarily a bad thing, but like, just think about how much money you would spend and, and where, what you could do with the business. Like think of all the other things that you could do. And what we, yeah. funny enough, like shortly thereafter, you know, we invested a ton of money into mentorship and it's just helped so tremendously. And, and in hindsight, I'm very glad I didn't go back to school because it would have taken time and energy away from uh, th that I have spent on my business, which ultimately has given me the ability to help more people and also yeah. grow my coaches. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I think it just depends where certain people are. You know, like I think, um, yeah, we, we could do it down a whole, whole nother path there. <laughs> but, but because I think the way that you started the gym, like you knew what you're doing. And, and the story is you, you've described it to me as you're trying to have these higher level conversations with professors that just weren't able to have these conversations that you wanted to have. And that's helped you. That's what helped you make the decision to, you know, take the path that you took in opening the gym. Right. Um, so it, it's just, it's interesting. And I, and I think that some of that was just speaks to the state of education. Some of it is again, like how young exercise science is as a major, but I think the, the maturity you had to go the path that you did when you were trying to have these higher level conversations and you found that the people that were supposed to be teaching, you just weren't able to have them. Well, especially when at the time, like this was when the internet was accessible enough to where like I could learn from the Eric Cressy's, uh, right. And, um, the, the Louis Simmons of the world and, and be like, okay, well, how come whenever I present, pre like present these methodologies and ideas to my professors in class, they tell me that they're stupid yet. These people are winning world titles. You know, I'm like, yeah. this makes no damn sense. <laughs> so there was, there was just like, th there was a lot going on that was not in balance with one another. And yeah, it was an easy decision for me to open Hardbat because it was like, all right, like I recognize that like if you want to do this your way, you're going to have to be brave enough to start a company. So now we're full circle into why we both started companies because we wanted to do it our own way to make sure we got people that you know, we're able to guide them the best that we could on the path that they wanted. For sure. Yeah. And I, I, one of the things I'll say all the time is that you cannot fake bravery. 
I think it's the most important trait when you start a business is bravery and you can't fake it because if you don't feel confident enough to do something and you do it anyway, that's bravery. You mm-hmm. can't fake it. Right. And, and like bravery creates action and action creates confidence. Like you're not going to be confident about starting a company like fresh out of school. It's just not yeah. going to happen. Right. You have to be brave enough to pull the trigger anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, Absolutely. dude, thanks so much for getting on here. I'm glad we were finally able to pull this off and I'll have to hop on your podcast sometime soon. Uh, go ahead and tell the audience uh, where they could find you or learn more about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we're on all social medias. I, personally, I'm at John Herding underscore DPT on Instagram. I don't post a ton, um, but you can find a lot about our, the business at um, precisionperformance.pt on Instagram. Our website's um, www.precisionperformancept.com. Um, we have a ton of um, content through through the business as far as like done for you programs. We're doing some remote programming, um, like hybrid programming where we can help people with, you know, some remote PT. We're doing, of course, we have our in-person physical therapy at our two clinics, one in Malvern, PA, one in Garnet Valley, PA. Um, and I just, I think we're just, we're in a unique spot where everybody's a strength coach. They understand programming. We have the relationships with strength coaches like you. Um, <clears throat> to make sure that um, we just guide f- like fitness focused individuals in the right path when they have an injury. Cause um, it's going to sound crazy, but I think it's an underserved population. Um, so yeah, definitely look, look us up. Um, we were more than happy to, if you want to email me, it's J O N at precision performance PT.com with questions. Um, we'll help guide you or send you in the right direction as best that we can. Cool. John, thanks so much. Appreciate you. Thanks. Thank you again for jumping on the podcast today. I just want to take a quick second to remind you that we post a lot of free and helpful content on our social media pages. You can find us at Hardbat Athletics on Instagram and Facebook and visit our website at www.hardbatathletics.com to learn more about what we do at our facility. Let's keep raising the standard together.